Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, good morning again. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This, uh, if you want to write over in the margin of that passage of script, this passage of scripture, beginning in verse 4, uh, this is called the Shema. That's a Hebrew word, but it was, uh, it was given as a declaration, and many of you have heard some of this before, but over the last few months, the Lord is teaching me. Uh, you know, you ever reach, I know this is really an arrogant thing to say, and I'm sorry, but you ever reach a place where you're like, now I know everything. Anybody? Okay, well, I'll be honest enough that there are times in my life where I have thought, this is complete. I mean, yes, I need to be reminded of a lot of things, but this is complete. This connects all the dots. And, uh, and I get to that place when it comes to theology and understanding the way the Lord works and what he wants from us and what he offers to give us and all of those sorts of things. But over the last few months, man, a whole lot of that has just been turned upside down. And I'm grateful for that because uh, when the Lord wrecks us, sometimes that's a really good thing for us. And uh, he has been wrecking me and, uh, and I'm grateful for it. And so I want to share some things with you that the Lord, and it's really just a little bit. I'm still, I'm still processing a whole lot of it and connecting other dots too. So uh, I know that the Lord is not just teaching me. He is giving it to me for us. Remember, just the same as uh, our church, we don't really want anything from you. We want things for you, and that's exactly the way the Lord operates with us as well. He wants things for us, and he wants us to give us the truth so that we can align ourselves, so that we can receive the things that he wants for us. And so when I think about this particular passage of Scripture, and you've heard me talk about it before, but uh, maybe today it's just a little bit fuller. I want to be an encouragement to us today because I just feel like we live in a day where we need some encouragement. And so this is called the Shema, and every Jewish father would wake up every morning and recite this as the alarm clock to the family. This was, uh, let's wake up, it's time to get ready for school or work, or life, or, or whatever it was. And they would begin by saying this in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your, what? Heart, with all your, what? Soul, and with all your strength, or your might, all of your, your, your body. Now, when Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus quoted what every Jewish young man and woman had learned from the day they could remember hearing speech. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your, what? Heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment, Jesus said. And the second one is like it or similar to it, an expansion of it. There's not two commandments. It's, they are equal to one another. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. If you want to take everything that God ever taught us as his followers, it's this. Love God. How do I know if I love God enough? It manifests itself in how I treat other people. They're tied so closely. In fact, the Apostle Paul ties them together very closely. An example of that would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to write that down and go back and study that. And so again, you've heard me talk about this. Some of you have heard me talk about this, but I think that as we are learning, and for something to get, they, they say for, for you to know that people begin to understand something that you are teaching or saying, you know they understand it when they start making fun of you for it. And so nobody has made fun of me for this, but maybe we haven't learned it yet. And so I want to take just a few moments and teach through because many of your faces are, are, are newer faces since that I have taught this. But it is, it is changing the way that I understand discipleship and disciple making. And so I think it's paramount to our future. What, what, we're, what I'm sharing with us today is so important to our future as individuals, and as a church. So when Paul specifically talks about being saved or our salvation experience, he talks about it in three tenses. He talks about it in past tense. He talks about it in future tense. He talks about it in present tense. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says, for, for by grace you have been, what? You have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. And so we know that we are saved by grace through faith. So God, as the original mover, he moves from heaven and reaches down to earth. That's the thing that separates Christianity from every other uh, worldview and every other uh, faith view. Is that God is the reacher outer first, right? He is the initiator of a relationship. That's called grace. When God extends toward us, it's grace. It's a gift that God gives us is an acknowledgement of his goodness. This is God's grace. You do not deserve it. He offers it freely. When we then respond to that grace, when we recognize that grace and say yes to it, that is faith. So God is not saving us because he has faith in us. It's our faith in God's grace and his ability to save. So it's by God's grace and through our faith, when God reaches down, it's grace. When we reach up, it's faith. When our reach touches his reach, it's salvation. And when we said yes to Jesus, whatever day of the week that was for you, when you acknowledged Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were saved. In biblical terms, it's not just theology, but the scripture itself uses the word justified. So when I look back at what Jesus has done for me, it's just as if I'd never sinned. When the Father sees me, he sees me as his son, Jesus, because Jesus has imputed his righteousness to me. He's given it to me. He became the propitiation, the substitutionary atonement so that I can be reconciled back to the Father. This is everything. So when I think about 
my salvation in terms of my spirit being saved. I am justified before God. Meaning when God sees me, he already sees me in eternity because the kingdom of God has already begun for me. The kingdom of heaven has already begun for me. I, ha- I am dead and Christ is alive in me. And so as I function in my daily walk, I am alive in Christ. Amen? I'm justified. So no matter, listen, this is hard. This is hard to understand because I think we've not connected dots before. That salvation has nothing to do with my day-to-day life. It is a position that I am in. In other words, it's not something where, well, you better be good or you won't be saved. It's got nothing to do with my goodness. It's got everything to do with the goodness of Jesus Christ. So if you're trying to work to say justified, you're probably not. Because you can only be justified by Jesus Christ. It is the only way to be saved. All right, that's justified. In my flesh... Well, this is in Romans chapter five, verse nine. Since then, since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. That's consistent with what we just learned. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see this? That we will be saved. We shall we, uh, be saved. This is future tense. Now, in terms of biblical theology... Scripture uses it several times. This is the act of being glorified. One of these days, I will experience glorification. That takes place in my body, in my flesh. So as I'm living, listen, I I understand it, probably the chief of my spirit is alive, but oh, wretched man that I am, amen? We still wrestle a lot with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, amen? So while I am in a position of salvation, I also wrestle with salvation. There's things that I see, there's things that I do, there's actions that are tempting for my flesh, and those things aren't going to go away. But I can change how strongly they draw me. But The truth of the matter is, we are going to wrestle with the desire of sin as long as we have mortal bodies. But, here's the good news. If my spirit is in a position of salvation with Jesus Christ, I have the hope that one day this body will put off mortality and will put on mortality and as Uh, Paul says, I don't know what it is that he is, but when I see glorified Jesus, I will be like him. Glorified. One day, my body's gonna pass through the fire of judgment, and when it does, everything that's blain will be burnt off, and everything that's left will be glorified to be like Jesus, and that's the body that we'll use for all eternity. Amen. While I'm waiting... I'm struggling, but I have the hope that one day I'll be glorified. So currently, I know that I am saved, even if sometimes I don't feel like it, even if sometimes I don't act like it. 
I am saved in Christ Jesus. And I know I'm able to endure a whole lot because I have the hope that one day I will be glorified in my body. So while I am waiting, listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being, anybody want to guess? Being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So while I am waiting, listen, there's not a whole lot I can do about my flesh. Yeah, I can curb sin and as long, as long as I'm leaning on the spirit, chances are my flesh doesn't have dominion over me anymore. I'm not a slave to it anymore. I have the power to say no to sin. Before my spirit was alive, I didn't have that power. But now I have resurrection power to tell my flesh to shut up. And so currently I'm walking and the scripture uses this term of salvation. The word is sanctification. It's the art or the process or the habit of taking conformity of our minds and changing the way we think. This changes my spirit. This changes my flesh. This changes the way I process. In the scripture, the words, there's many words used to, uh, to, to uh, form around the idea of our sanctification. The word uh, soul is one. The, the word mind is one. The word emotions and feelings and ambition all of these, understanding, personality, all of these words. It's the seat of emotion. The, the most general word that encompasses all of these other words is the word heart. It encompasses everything that by day to day is being saved. So I will be saved. I mean, I will be saved. I have been saved. I am being saved every day as I take my thoughts captive to Christ, as I am transformed by the renewing of my mind over and over and over. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Over and over we see this uh, process, this completed process as we study through the scripture. So, so this, is, this is incredibly important for us to process our identity in Jesus Christ. And, and one of the things that I'm more convinced of than ever before is one of the greatest problems within our faith collectively and as a nation is that we struggle so much with having the right identity of knowing who we really are. We struggle with that in our flesh. We struggle with that in our spirit. And we struggle with that in our mind. Who am I? Whose people do I belong to? What kind of personality should I have? Who will love me? Who is attracted to me? Who am I attracted to? Who do I want to lure? Who lures me? We are desperate to know where do I fit and that begins at about middle school. And it lasts until you take your last breath. And it creates a lot of problems for us because we don't know who we are. Now, I'm just going to be really blunt. If you are not alive in Christ, you're going to struggle with that every day. And you should. God designed us to every day. You're going to wonder. That's why a lot of folks make a lot of bad decisions is because they don't know the purpose of life. They don't know their calling. They don't know why they exist. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they came from. And I don't know who I am. But once our spirit is alive, it gets to inform every other part of us. 
And so while we are very, very quick to forget, we need to be reminded who we are in the word of God. That's what tells us. Not our mirror, not our feelings. The word of God testifies to us who Jesus is. And whoever Jesus is, that's who I am becoming. Okay? So, in Romans chapter 8 verse 4, it says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. Because God is telling us we become what we worship. And so if you're going to spend all your time worshiping your flesh, guess what? you're going to become more and more like your flesh. But if you spend your energy worshiping the spirit of Jesus Christ, you're going to become more and more like Jesus Christ. It's simple, really. So we are justified. We will be glorified. We are being sanctified. This takes place in our in our minds, our thoughts, our personality, our emotions, our decision-making. It's, 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 uh, in the Greek language, the word is suke. It's where we get our uh, English word, psychology, the study of the mind. So if that helps you understand the disconnection from the mind or how we think, how we, how we feel about that, it's helpful. So this is where the daily battles want to take place. It's also where the daily battle can be won. All right? Now, I'm going to shift gears, and some of these things might be a little disconnected from each other. But I want you, I, I, I've, I've labored and labored, really, honestly, for months over this. I can't figure a way to connect them all together. So I'm going to give you some buckshot, and then we'll... Put the target out there in a little while, all right? Maybe if you don't know what that means, that's okay too. That's confusing. That's where the confusion starts. So remember, we are created in God's image and likeness. And we know that God is an emotional God, and, and God gets angry, right? But God gets angry, but without sin. God gets jealous, but without sin. Listen, I'm just going to help you a little bit. There's a pattern developing God has pride, but without, yes. God also shows pleasure, but without sin, and on and on and on. So, however, when sin entered into our nature, we are made in God's image and likeness. We are created as emotional beings, but along with our flesh, our emotions have become corrupted as well. And so not only do we have to reconcile and rectify the deeds of the flesh, we are also in the daily habit of having to reconcile and rectify the deeds of the mind, our emotional being, the way we feel, the way we process. And I'm telling you, there is an extremely thin line between listening to the flesh and listening to the Spirit. There's a lot of times we can get confused because we think that it's the Spirit, but we're actually obeying our thirst. Once we are justified in Jesus, we can have authority over our emotions. And we can actually drive our emotions. And we can know if our emotions are godly and produce life, or if they're ungodly and produce 
death. That doesn't mean that we're not emotional, but that our emotions can be holy. Our emotions can glorify and please God too. But often when salvation is simply a choice, a prayer we prayed or a decision that we made at some point in life, we may neglect growth and we may not glorify God in that area of our life, the arena of our emotions. We get caught up just like anybody else gets caught up. We get informed by what other people think about me and I wear that identity instead of what God thinks about me. And it gets us in all kinds of trouble. Listen, this is probably the deepest, most meaningful, freeing message that our world needs to hear today. One of the things that I've been guilty of, and I'm actually through this, so I told you it's wrecked me. But one of the things that's through studying all of these things over the last few months is, is I've had to repent. Not because I've been wrong, but because I've recognized I've been incomplete. Not incorrect, just incomplete. I've taught some things that I, I don't know that they were wrong. There's just more. And I, I might have, and for my own life, drawn some conclusions but I didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle. Here's one of the things that I've been guilty of. I don't know that I've taught it to us, but you may say, yep, I remember you saying that. I don't remember, maybe. Indirectly, for sure, because it's driven me a lot. And that's this. If I can believe enough truth, if I can just believe enough truth, it'll change how I feel. You ever thought that? If you don't uh, think about a time in your life when you're nervous or anxious or depressed or frustrated, what do we do? We open up the Bible and we start reading because, you know, we see the deficit of truth. Well, if I knew enough truth, I'd, I could change how I feel. If I, if I could just get enough truth, it'll change how I feel. But what the Lord has taught me is that that's a little bit upside down. Yes, I'm not saying that truth isn't important. But what I am saying in, in studying how the Lord has created us fearfully and wonderfully and how the the brain works and neuroscience and believe me I know some of you tapped out right there but there's something about learning how our bodies actually work that help inform us and one of the things that we have learned over the last 30 years is that we learn first by emotion and then information and based on how we feel determines what we're willing to learn and so if we only focus on hard facts, how many of you have been in a Sunday school class or a sermon and you think, ooh, that was really good and don't remember it by lunch? Why? Because our emotions weren't changed enough to receive that information. But you can smell fresh cut grass and takes you back to a moment in your childhood. It elicits emotions because, because the truth of those moments are tied to how we felt about those moments. But one of the things that I think the church is guilty of, and not just ours, but the church is guilty of, is stripping emotions because emotions are bad. Only truth, only truth, only truth. And while that's true, I think a lot of times we've neglected some of the fruit of the Spirit and some of the relational parts of our faith And we've not been informed by those so that we can remember truth and apply truth. Listen, here's something that I've been saying over the last few months for sure is I am far more, I'm educated far beyond my obedience. We all are. We all know more about scripture than we're rightly applying. Amen. Can somebody else be in the room with me this morning? Why? Because when I hear 
truth, I think it's going to change me. But what the scriptures very clearly say is truth doesn't change you. Truth sets you up for change. What changes us is the application of that truth and the doing of that truth and putting forth the effort and the striving for those truths. So science tells us that our brains are changed by feelings and emotions first. So, for instance, this is why it is, uh, Paul said to the church at Corinth, it is the goodness of God that leads men to what? Repentance. That's a very important verse, by the way. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. But if we're not careful, some extroverted people might be tempted to point fingers and baseball bats when people mess up and drive people back to truth. But God doesn't do that. What God does is he shows goodness and he shows grace and he gives us peace. That's what drives us back to truth. We might have had this thing upside down all this time. And I don't think that we're alone. What I'm saying is, and don't get nervous because it doesn't change that much. These are tweaks. But what, what we found is, that, and think about it, when you think about personalities, when you think about churches specifically, you have churches that are hardcore doctrine and you have churches that are feel good. How do you think? Right? And they gravitate toward each other. And churches, the churches that are, you know, we, we talk about uh, truth only. And I'm not saying that it's not. It should be. But truth only it attracts people who already agree. You think about churches like ours. It attracts people who already agree. But we're not very caring and compassionate and good to people that are struggling. But you think about churches that attract people that are struggling and need emotional... Li- and they're so emotional, emotionally sensitive... Never drive people to truth. Used to, it's kind of been debunked within the last 20 years or so, but uh, there is uh, right brain, left brain. You ever heard that? People are right brained, are creative thinkers, and, you know, kind of the, how do you feel? I say that because I'm a left brain thinker. <laughs> Logical, education, information, rational. Not much room for gray areas. How many of you are left brain? Nope, you're not. There's no such thing as left brain, right brain. Those are just excuses that we've told ourselves to justify our stance. And now I say that kind of in a little bit in jest. There is left brain and right brain only if you take the Facebook quizzes because they're hanging on pretty tightly to that. But neuroscience says that doesn't exist. There's actually a nerve bundle between the right brain and left brain that channels information back and forth. You're actually using all of your brain all at once. But one side informs the other side, and very quickly the other side is informed of it, and it's back and forth constantly like that, right? It always is moving. But my fear is, yes, obviously there are people who are more logical, and there are people who are more creative, But instead of putting them off into groups and creating churches around those structures, I think what the Lord has taught us from the very beginning in Scripture is that He created us to be emotional. He created us to be creative. He created us to be artsy. He also created us to be truth 
and to be uh, responsible for absolutes. And these should find themselves holistically in one person. But the, part, the problem is, is that we've exercised the muscle that comes natural to us, but we've neglected. This is the exact same things that the Pharisees had done. They had taken the parts that they gravitated toward, but they had left out all of the mercy, all of the parts of the feeling, all of the emotion, all of the sense of sensitivities. And they had gotten to where they were just demanding people agree with them. And you know who they attracted? People that agreed with them already. So what we're learning is that there is a primary attribute that the brain is constantly scanning for. Now I know, this is, don't don't give up on me yet because this is very important. But there is a primary attribute that the brain is scanning for constantly and every time that it looks, it's looking for this one thing. Do you know what it is? It's joy. It's constantly looking for joy. It's the primary to everything else. It's how it, it's the, the brain The primary function of the brain is to seek joy, first and foremost. And what it it does with joy will determine what it does with feeling and what it does with truth. Isn't that nuts? So if I feel joy, this is one of the reasons why cults are so successful, is they make people feel good about themselves and they're willing to believe whatever you're selling. Because you care about them. When your face makes contact, they know when they make contact and they give you that smile, people are, you love me. The Lord knows that. Can I just, can I just quickly make a hard shift back to what the Lord has taught us all along that I've just recently found and maybe we'll start processing this as a church. I know it's a super weird sermon. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. I'm going to go back to Numbers chapter 6. First, I want to read this. While you're turning back over to Deuteronomy, I said Numbers chapter 6. I meant Deuteronomy 6, but I I said back. Numbers chapter 6 is what I meant. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Listen to this. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That unity of the faith is the emotional part of the church and of the knowledge, that's the logical, truthful part of the church, of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. You hear that? That discipleship means that we work balanced in our emotion and in our truth up to the full measure of Jesus Christ. Well, John in John chapter 1 verse 12 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory, the completion, the glory as the only son from the father full of, anybody want to guess? Grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of the complete emotional stability of the Father, and he's also full of the very Word of God himself. 
And now what Paul told the church at Ephesus is that's how we know that we're becoming disciples, when we are mature both in our emotions and in our truth. We know what to do, how to do it. We know what to say, how to say it. This is so important. Truth is so important. But so is how we process it and how we give it away and how we feel when we do. It's one of the reasons why relationships are so incredibly important. I want you to think about a quadrant very quickly. There's four, four sections of a quadrant. And, and there's, there's two lines, a horizontal line and a vertical line. All right? Along the vertical line, we're going to put truth. Horizontal line, we're going to put feelings. Now, when it comes to our sanctification, which is where we wrestle with our truth and feelings, we're going to be all over the place. I believe in a lot of truth, but I don't really live it out very well. I don't, it doesn't make me feel joyful. It's obligation. Or I don't feel much, I don't really know much truth, but boy, I sure do love people. You see, the, the, the problem with that is the truth without feeling is pharisaical. But feeling without truth is uh, very dangerous. It's, it, there's no salvation or transformation in it. But I want you to think about those two things. When you think about the modern day church, I think that you can put just about any movement in one of those two groups. So devoted to truth, they're of no earthly good to anybody unless you already believe. Or so bleeding heart, generous, that they never confront people with the truth of God's word and we just leave people where they are, but we love them. Those are the two things I feel like we're wrestling in this day and what the Lord is calling us to. And I feel like as a church for, for a long time is that we have emphasized the word of God at the sake of the feelings that come with that. I want us as a church to begin to focus on having the joy of the Lord and that being the driving force of everything that we say and everything that we do. That love, that love. I mean, Jesus said that they'll know you by the truth. No, He's gonna, they're gonna, the world's going to know you by the love that you have for one another. But we keep telling ourselves, if I just know more truth, I'll be able to love more. But the truth of the matter is that's not the case. That's not the, that's not the way our emotions process. The way it processes is we feel first and the truth is solidified in that. And when those two things take place, now we're ready to quickly apply the word of God. I think that's one of the reasons why in America's church, 95% of Christians never share their faith. Why? Because when they think about sharing their faith, they're not tied, it's not tied to joy, it's tied to obligation and fear. We've got to figure out how to break those things. And I think Scripture is pretty clear as to how to do that. Well, I could go on and on and on, and uh, as you well know, but uh, I'm not going to do that. But I, I think that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at, at, at some of this and try to figure out, don't you want to have joy in your everyday life? Don't, don't you want to just have that deep-seated in you all the time? After all, listen, the joy of the Lord is what? And joy is a, is a gift that God gives us. Joy 
Truth does not produce joy. The presence of God does. It's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. You will never be more, you're not waiting for a nugget of truth that unlocks the joy component of your mind. It doesn't work that way. If that's the way we continue to process and dig things out, we're going to continue to be Christians. Looking forward to heaven when the joy of the Lord is all around us right now. All right, well, let me give you a couple of more things and then we'll go. <clears throat> this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dr. Alan Shore discovered how the human brain develops in a person through joy and attachment. He wrote the effects of secure attachment. I don't believe that he's a Christian, but it doesn't change the way the brain functions. He's been cited over 20,000 scientific journals. He, he writes primarily about the need for proper emotional brain health and how that opens up to receive truth, strangely enough. But Dr. Shore defined joy relationally. That joy can only be found relationally. Joy is not something that is in you. It's something that can only be found in relationship. That's why our brain is constantly scanning for who's going to look at me, who's going to receive me in every situation. How do I feel about it? This is the promise over and over in, of God in the Old Testament and the words of Jesus even in the New Testament, over and over. This is how he defines joy. As someone who is glad to be with me. He defines it as that sparkle in the eyes of someone when you enter into a room. What he said is that when you walk into a room, the, the, the person whose eyes sparkle are the ones you immediately begin to move toward. The ones who make eye contact and smile are the ones that you immediately move toward. Now, some of you don't want to be attracted, attractive, and so you don't make eye contact. I don't want anybody to come into my space. I understand all of that. But I want us to start thinking about that. When people walk into these doors, everybody in this room, we should, just, we should light up. Why? Because he says that it fills up the, the low joy component of the brain. And when that is filled, then we're able to receive truth. It's one of the reasons why I believe worship comes first. Because worship brings us into the presence of God. Amen? When you're in the presence of God, guess whose face you see? You see the face of God. But most of us are so afraid of God, even in our faith, we don't receive that the way God intended it. Let me explain what I mean by that. And, and this is the whole point of today's message, okay? I've already talked about 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that talks about the light of God shining in the face of Jesus. Listen to that. I want you to memorize that. The, the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. This is a blessing that God told the priests, by the way, who the New Testament says, if you are in Christ, you are a royal priesthood. We are now those priests. That we are to bless, the priests are to bless the nation of Israel. It became a regular prayer of blessing for the Jewish nation. Listen to what he says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 
This is so important. So when we read the Lord make his face shine on you and the Lord turn his face towards you, that is exactly what we are finding out that produces joy is when we look into the very face of God. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians that it's the, the face of Jesus that radiates the joy of the Lord, the glory of God. And so when we think about looking at the face of the Father, this is why we are blessed when we read Numbers chapter 6. Is In this blessing, it is the Lord's face be upon you. You ever wonder why, why does it say that? Just so a lot of translations will say things like that God's presence is near. You know, you want to know that God's presence is near. That is not what the Hebrew means. What he is saying is may you feel the joy of God's face shining on you because when you walk into the room, his eyes sparkle. He welcomes you into his presence and when you come in through the avenue of worship and the avenue of wanting to give him glory, his, may his face shine upon you. And may you know he wants you to be with him because he wants to be with you. I can't hardly even think about that without feeling something because I know how most of the time I know me and I know the terror that I feel sometimes about taking my chances in the presence of God. And when I read Numbers chapter 6, you know, may God's face shine upon you. I think, phew, God's watching. But there's a whole lot of verses that actually talk about that. I, I don't have time to go into a whole lot of those this morning. But you go from uh, many of the Psalms where it talks about the presence of the Lord being upon you. I don't know why the translators translated that word that way. But the Hebrew word is payim, which means the face. Every time that the Bible talks about joy, there's a translation issue where the word is actually that God's face is in the room, that God's face is watching you and his face is radiating because you came into the room. I'm almost afraid to talk like that because it doesn't come natural for me to think that God wants to be with me. It's like, honestly, I feel like God just barely puts up with me most days. But when you read the blessing that the priests were to give to the people, it was God's face upon you. And to give you grace. And may God's face turn toward you. There's two times that face is used. Most translations, like the NIV, mistranslates face and says countenance. But it's not countenance. It's face. May his face shine upon you. And in that, that time, what it refers to is may you know how God thinks about you, how God feels about you, and that's going to change the way you feel. And when it changes the way you feel, you can see the second time face is used, you can see yourself in his sparkled reflection. And you'll have peace. Isn't that powerful? When I, when I, may God bless you and keep you and may you know how he feels when you walk into the room. And when you know that, when you can see yourself in his face, you'll be able to have peace. And you know what you'll do when you have peace? May your feet be shod with the preparation of peace. 
which is the gospel. Beautiful are the feet of those who go in peace and tell the good news from the mountaintops. All of a sudden, the face of God is this inside out. It's this, how do I feel about God and how does God feel about me? And once I know that, I am confident in the truth of God and I want to declare it to everybody. That's the priestly blessing of Numbers chapter six. And it's all been hidden from us. Because I, and I'm not saying that Satan is in the, in the uh, commentaries and in the, the translations because I have a lot of confidence in translators. But what I am saying, if we're not careful, that's one of the reasons why I think Satan creates division everywhere you go and he tries to cut off our emotion. I think that's, that's the reason. It's because that's where joy dwells. You put grace and peace together. You know what happens when grace and peace get married? It produces joy. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and may you feel joy in that moment and when you do you'll be able to see who you really are and you'll be able to walk in this present age confident that you are saved and justified by the life of Jesus Christ in Psalm 89 verse 15 the NIV translates it this way blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you who walk in the light of your presence O Lord but the Hebrew doesn't say it that way it says in the Hebrew in the light of your presence it's literally in the light of your face O Lord Payim Psalm 16 verse 11 in your presence is the fullness of joy but the original says this in the abundance of joy with your face Psalm 21, verse 6. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. But the word-for-word -word translation of the Hebrew is this. You make him happy with joy with your face. When your face is turned toward him. Listen, there is a component where when we can look into the face of God and know what he really thinks of us, we are filled with joy. But how that is magnified when we have relationships with one another. And we should be working in these days double time and a half for our eyes to sparkle when we see each other. But we're so wrapped up in our own drama and our own complaints and criticism, our own truths, that we can't see one another and we can't give that joy away and lift everyone's joy. I think of... One of the things that Jesus <clears throat> taught when he was uh, talking to his, uh, to his disciples, in fact. Uh, listen to this in John chapter 15. You can turn it over if you want, highlight it, mark it, rewrite it, something. Here's a couple of takeaways that I want to give you just before I read it. Number one, listen to me closely. And this isn't just my feel-good message because, you know, I don't preach very many of those and I try, I'm working on it. God the Father wants to be with you. And he wants you to know his pleasure with you this very moment. And it's that pleasure that will lead us to Christ-likeness. It's not Christ-likeness that brings us to his pleasure. 
that's, that's where I've made a mistake for most of my disconnected life. I've read it backwards. If I just be good enough, God will be pleased with me. The truth of the matter is, God's, God's pleased with us. And he loves us. And it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. This is what Jesus said in John 15. He's talking to his disciples about he loves his disciples. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> then, he says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. But if we replace the word joy there with the detailed definition, here's what Jesus is saying. My father's face lights up when he sees me because I'm so special to him. So I'm telling this to you so that you will know how special you are to my father and to me. Our faces are always shining on you with delight. Can you feel that? I'm telling you, when you feel that, you'll be able to draw a lot closer to the throne room. And when you do, you'll get a taste of his truth there too. Joy is the only super emotion. What I mean by that is there's a whole lot of emotions that you can feel that kind of override other emotions or replace other emotions. This is not true with joy. Joy lays alongside every other emotion. So just think about if you were to find out today that you lose your job. Well, nobody gets excited about that. Few people get excited about that. But you might be filled with betrayal or anger or fear, worry. There's a whole lot of feelings that you might have. But what joy will do, and we are responsible to give this away to one another and to remind each other of the joy of the Lord, joy lays along beside anger. You experience anger and joy. Fear and joy Worry and joy. Joy doesn't replace unpleasant emotions, but it combines with emotions to keep us relationally connected, even in distress. Listen, Christians, you can't get your identity from the mirror. You can't get your identity from your mind. You have to get your identity from your maker. And you have to know how he sees you and how he turns his face on you. What he already thinks of you. And you already have his grace. Respond to that grace with faith. Trust him. Believe what he says about how he feels. And see your reflection in his sparkling eyes of you. And then you will also have peace. The first face is seeing him. The second face is seeing yourself seeing him. I want to encourage you this morning. I, I know that it's long. Some of this is just introductory work too because there's a couple of other attributes that as a church I feel like we need to do some heavy lifting work on. Joy is one of them. I don't want to just come to church because it's our obligation. I want to come to church because my joy level is low and when I'm here, you lift it. 
I want our eyes to be looking for people that we can lift. I want our hearts and our hands. I want our our love to be when we're out. I want us to just be people who are just lifting everybody's joy. We know that it happens. And when it does, we're going to be a whole lot more appealing than when we're right. And there's nothing wrong with being right. I keep saying that because I'm still learning it. So who am I? Who do I belong to? What am I supposed to do? Who's attracting me? Who's luring me? Who cares about me? That's who we'll gravitate to. I need us to know that the Lord is initiating first. Look unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, that your joy may be full and that you may know what the Father thinks of you already. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for your word today. I ask that you would allow this, some of this, to, to work its way down. And, uh, and Lord, may we recognize that we don't have to be Christians out of obligation or habit or it's not, a, it's not a drudgery. Hopefully one day we'll feel complete and hopefully one day we'll feel good and hopefully one day we'll feel something if we just keep learning, keep knowing. But Lord, I pray that we would work today on, on bringing our emotions into conformity to what your word already says. May we be humbled as we think about your feelings toward us. And may we see your glory shining through the face of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? As you stand, I'd like for us to be still. I know we've been in here for a long time, but I want, I want us just to take a few seconds or a minute and just, and just ask the Lord. Just spend a moment in prayer and just ask the Lord, Lord, Help me to understand your love for me. And here's what I think you're going to find. When when you ask the Lord, help me understand your love for me, you're going to see Jesus hanging on a cross. And you're going to see his love. And you're going to see his glory. And you're going to see that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You are the joy that is set before him. Know that. Feel that. Trust that. Tell that. The glory of God may be seen through you. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.